Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Recently, Fran was talking to a woman whose daughter's marriage was about to end. The daughter despaired. And uh, Fran suggested that she and her daughter see the movie War Room in the theater, a movie on the power of prayer. They did, and then began to fight in prayer together for the daughter's marriage. Maybe, maybe you have a marriage that needs to be prayed for, that you're desperate for. Maybe it's a son, a daughter, a husband, or some other family member, a friend, or a colleague who is away from the Lord. Maybe you seem hopelessly caught in a sin you can't break. Maybe your church, your district, your denomination has plateaued or is in decline spiritually and numerically. Then this message is for you. Desperate situations and desperate times call for desperate prayer. We'll only have time to look at two aspects of desperate prayer this morning. And before we do, let's bow for prayer and ask the Spirit of God to minister to our hearts. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Don't convince us only on the mind level. I pray that you'd move beyond the mind straight to the heart, the emotions, the will, so that we will respond to you and become a desperate church of prayer here in this region and across the country. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first aspect of desperate prayer is surrendered prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, it says that in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, and she, she wept bitterly. Ha Hannah was the daughter of Elkanah, I mean the wife of Elkanah, and Elkanah had a second wife, Peninnah, and she had, uh, she had numerous sons and daughters, and Hannah had none. And Hannah wanted a child. And uh, Hannah became desperate because she was being provoked continually about this. And uh, she, couldn't, uh, she couldn't bear children, and Elkanah's other wife just provoked and provoked her, and so she was desperate, desperately wanting a child. When some become desperate, they despair and give up. When others become desperate, they get angry and bitter towards God. That often spills out onto others. Both are wrong responses. See what Hannah does in her desperation. In verse 11, the very next verse, it says, She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And immediately she went home, she, was, she became pregnant, and when her boy was weaned, she kept her vow and took her young boy to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and gave him, uh, uh, gave him over to Eli the priest in those days. Who was he? The great prophet and judge of Israel, Samuel. What did Hannah do? In her prayer, she fully surrendered and submitted her will to God's will. What do we mean by that? Some believers think that prayer is about getting what you want. But see what prayer really is about. The disciples asked Jesus, for example, to teach them how to pray, so he gave them a primer in prayer. And he said, pray 
Then, like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he continued on. I want you to notice something about this model prayer. First, it begins with God's glory, hallowed be your name. The second thing that I want you to notice about what Jesus taught is it moves to God's will in advancing his kingdom to be a supreme prayer desire on our part. Not our will, but your will be done. All other requests fall under the umbrella of those two things, God's glory and God's will. There you have it. There you have the two conditions or filters for guaranteed answers to prayer. That's what Jesus was referring uh, to when he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's got to have his stamp of approval on it. It has to be for his glory and for his will in advancing the kingdom. It's not about what it does for us. You, uh, you ask, are you saying that God never wants to give you what you want? Of course. God often blesses us way beyond the things that we've asked and for things that we just want, not things that, are, uh, that we need, and things that aren't necessarily about the kingdom. And the reason is because God is good and he just loves to bless. He can't help but bless. But that's not what prayer is about. He has surprised me with blessings like that, 2008. Uh, a man said, you can start flying my airplane. I wasn't even praying that. In fact, when he offered it, I went to prayer for the next two months, thinking it might be a trick of the devil to get me off my game. God wants to bless, but that's not what it's about. Have you ever noticed that a brand new believer may easily get a want answered when you don't? Have you, have you ever no noticed that? Have you, have you ever noticed that children will often get what they pray for when you might not? Uh, recently, one of our uh, children, a married daughter, Lance and Julie, may as well say it. <laughs> or you'll think it's Chris and they'd never have a dog. But anyway, Julie and Lance's dog was hit by a car. Now, this dog is crazy. It's a lovable dog, but it's a crazy dog. Constantly runs out to chase cars. And this time, after about the hundredth time, it got hit, finally. <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> they heard a loud thump. When they ran to the scene, the dog lay there, all splayed out, motionless, all body flu uh, bodily fluids emptied out. Everyone thought he was dead. He's just a little, just a little rascal. One helpful woman was about to wrap up the dead dog in something to remove his remains. Then someone noticed that the dog was alive. One of the older children gathered the other children to pray for the life of this dog, and then the family anointed the dog with oil. <laughs> just don't bring your pets in here to get us to... <laughs> After they prayed, the dog jumped up and awkwardly ran up the stairs. They took the dog to the vet, and there was nothing broken. And the next day, the dog was pretty much back to normal. You know who else he often... I mean, I mean he, he answers prayers of his kids. Those little ones. And he often answers the prayers of non-believers. 
That's what Jesus was doing when he went around healing many, many, uh, uh, many, many unbelievers, and then they believed. He's a gentle shepherd. He knows where you are and takes you from there. But now I want to stop and switch gears. I'm going to flip this coin to the other side. In 1998, Grace Fast's husband lay dying from cancer at only age 42. She persevered with much prayer, often walking down their private runway. And one day the Holy Spirit whispered to her that she was to quit praying for Reg's healing, and two days later he passed away. Now I want to ask you a question. Why would God answer the prayer of young children regarding the life of a dog and not answer the prayer of a 42-year-old wife and mother regarding the life of her husband and the children's father? Could it be that in answering the prayers of the small children, God was advancing his kingdom by strengthening their little faith in him and in prayer before they, uh, before they could possibly move to the next level of understanding that at other times God's kingdom and glory are better served when our prayers are not answered the way we ask them? I think so. Grace tells us that she fell in love with prayer during those trying days in a fiery crucible that prepared her to mentor 200 trained intercessors here at Southland, and now she has begun to personally mentor prayer leaders in other churches who have joined church renewal. This is the answer to why we see so many healings in the New Testament about, uh, among non-believers, thereby thereby becoming believers, and then are left puzzled as to why some of those same healers, like Paul and his thorn in the flesh that wasn't healed, and why Paul's trusted Timothy was often ill. He said, take a little wine for your often illness, uh, stomach illness. Why Paul told of leaving his valued ministry partner Trophimus sick at Miletus when he, Paul was right there. And yet they're healing a whole bunch of others. It explains a lot. Many bemoan the fact that we don't see more of the power of God. We'd see a whole lot more of his healing power, if you like, if we'd use our healing prayers on non-believers rather than on the saints. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't want to heal saints. Absolutely. And we see it here at Southland. But if we read the scriptures correctly, that's what's going on. God knows where we are, and, it, it, and he takes us from there, and he moves us forward. God is not eager to make you and I more comfortable. He's eager to make you like his son, to grow your character and make you holy, and make you usable as a leader in his kingdom. And for that... Uh, you generally need a crucible in your life. As church renewal is reaching more and more pastors, John and Lorraine Bergen, who have themselves been refined in a, a crucible of fire, often say this, and I quote, we're looking for pastors who have walked the dark night of the soul and didn't quit. When we're in distress, our first response is to cry out for relief. However, God does not always bring relief because he destines the distress to produce his desires in us. That's what happened to Hannah in prayer. She went in wanting to have a son for herself, for herself, for herself, for herself. It was all about her. 
She had a reputation to uphold. She wanted to be like everyone else. This wasn't illegitimate, an illegitimate or immoral desire. It wasn't selfish. It wasn't a bad desire. It just wasn't God's desire. It wasn't the primary desire that we're to have. And she didn't have God's desire for her. In desperate prayer, she came out with changed desires and a surrendered heart for God's glory and advancement of God's kingdom and his will. And she gave birth to the great prophet and judge, Samuel, and God's desire and will for her cost her plenty. You think that she was in anguish before she had a son? I'm not sure that it was anything like the anguish that she experienced when she took Samuel right after he was weaned and took him to the temple far away from where she was living and handed him over to the priest. Think of how much anguish she was in when she, uh, she was weaning him and counting down the days till he wouldn't be in her arms again. Did he cry? when she handed him over to Eli the priest as she turned to leave? Did he hold out his arms to her, beckoning her to come, take him back? She will have been crushed, her husband, no doubt, holding his sobbing wife as she shook, grief-stricken in his arms. It cost her plenty. In desperate prayer, little happens until you get past full surrender. Little happens until you get past full surrender, counting the cost. It'll cost you something, time, or money, career, reputation, relationships, health, dreams, ambitions, loss of a loved one, life of ease, loss of sleep, because you have to get up early to pray. God may want you to remain single or childless so that he can use you in his kingdom without a husband or a spouse or children. Persecution, responsibility, and pressure. Hard work, generally speaking, the bigger the prize you so desperately pray for, the greater the cost. I'm going to say that again. Generally speaking, the bigger the prize you so desperately pray for, the greater the cost. But Jesus said that in losing our life, we find it. This is what he meant. And until you and I come out of, uh, until you come out of your desperate prayer closet in full surrender, willing to die, the next prayer, which is warfare prayer, is of little value to you. For it is only those who are willing to pick up their crosses, as we were singing, who can truly pray such prayers because those are the ones who will do whatever their master bids them do, for they've already died. So let's look at warfare prayer. Scripture tells us that we have weapons to engage the enemy, the devil, with. Weapons of warfare are not of flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. And in Ephesians 6, 17, we have five pieces of the armor, but then, then Paul says, pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In this passage, uh, Paul tells us not just to put defensive pieces on, but he then tells them to pick up an offensive weapon. 
and it is clearly linked with prayer. But what exactly is this sword of the Spirit? And it's going to take a little bit for me to unpackage this, so I want you to follow, and we're going to come back. I'll wrap it up and take it back to Ephesians 6 here. The disciples were on a storm on the sea. Uh, they were on the sea. Jesus was sleeping. A storm came up. Jesus had just completed a full day of teaching. And Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. And the disciples, several of them who were skilled fishermen, and being on the sea countless times, entered the boat, and the voyage began. Jesus was exhausted, and he fell asleep in the stern, and a great storm with fierce winds arose, filling the boat with water. And these seasoned fishermen concluded they were doomed. Frank, frantically, they cried out uh, to Jesus, Teacher, don't you even care that we're going to drown? Jesus then got up, rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Turning to his disciples, he said, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Their display of fear prompted Jesus to rebuke them for a lack of faith. But wouldn't you have been afraid too? What did faith have to do with it? Now we know, and I have to back up, because not everybody is at the exact same place in understanding here. So I'm going to back up just a wee bit. So those of you that this is old, just hang on. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by a word. I know many of the translations say the definite article, but it's an anarthrous or no article construction. A word from Christ, and the word is rhema, not logos. He's not speaking to them necessarily about a specific, the, the word of God. He's talking about a word of God. And I know in context, this passage is talking about the, the saving faith sort. And, when, uh, and isn't it true, when I got saved, I remember how Christ spoke to me in my heart as the preacher preached the word. It was in a tent crusade. Reverend Brunk was his name. And suddenly I came under conviction. Well, Acts talks about that in chapter 2. They were cut to the heart when Peter was preaching. said, what shall we do to be saved? That's another way of saying it. Uh, the Father draws us to salvation. It isn't just an intellectual decision. Oh, I now, I think I believe this is a good idea. No. He actually speaks to us and draws us to Him. It's a convicting salvation. But it's not just when we get saved that He speaks a word to us. Luke chapter 24, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us? The two disciples were on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared right after his resurrection. And he appeared, and they didn't recognize him, and he spoke to them, and then they asked him to have supper with him. He broke bread, and when he prayed, their eyes were opened, and he disappeared. And then they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us. It's another way of saying God is speaking to us. The Lord not only speaks to us at salvation, but after as well. And after his ascension to heaven, Christ spoke specifically to each of the seven Asian churches of Revelation 2 to 3. That's after his ascension. He's still speaking to the churches, but I wonder how many churches are listening to the Spirit of God. And he ended each message to the seven churches with the same refrain. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He expects.
expects us to hear what he's saying to us. Would you agree with that? That's what Revelation teaches us. Seven times he says that. I mean, anytime God's word says it twice, you better perk up. When he says it seven times, we better really listen. Jesus said in, in another place, in, in John's gospel, uh, chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. They hear my voice. Jesus promised the disciples they would receive specific words from him which they were to speak in times of persecution. He said, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It may be a, a Bible verse or something, but it could be something very different. The point is, we're to receive a word, and in this case, speak it out. And it's the Spirit's words that are being spoken. I'm, I'm building on something here, okay? So just hang on. Jesus taught that this is to be normal Christian living. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word, that's rhema, that's what's there, that comes from the mouth of God, every one of them. The written words that give us a, a distinct, distinct boundaries within which to operate and show us what the parameters are and the boundaries are within which we can operate so we're not doing stupid, foolish things and running around with our head, heads chopped off. But he speaks to us, and it's normative Christian living. It all starts with a word from Christ spoken in your heart at salvation and continues in your Christian life. That's what Christ expected. Now, that changes everything. What this is saying is that if God speaks a word to you, you can take it to the bank. That is his will, and it should happen. Notice I didn't say it will happen. I'll get to that in a moment. Hearing a word from Christ, whether using Scripture or by other means, opens up the potential for faith to be activated. And that was what Jesus took issue with in his disciples. He'd already given his word that they'd make it safely to the other side. We saw that in Mark chapter 4, 35. Let us cross over to the other side. So Jesus' rebuke was because they didn't act on a clear word from God. This is how Jesus had performed all his extraordinary works. He said in John 12, 49, for example, I, I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. He also said in 5.19 that the Son can do nothing by himself because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And he expected his disciples and us to follow his example. They'd been told they were going to the other side, so they should act accordingly. If you're facing a big obstacle in life, the first thing you need from God is a word from him regarding your situation if you don't know what his will is. Now, sometimes we do know what his will is then we need to go to warfare prayer. But I'm taking the intermediate step here right now. Assuming that you don't know. Or you don't know what the strategy is in doing that. He has a strategy for removing obstacles in every case. If he says you're to go to the other side, he will get you there. If he says that you, uh, uh, to you that you are to get to the other side of your problem, then he expects you to get to the other side. 
But it all starts with a word, a, a, a rhema from him. If you can't hear God, you cannot have a faith that changes circumstances and does great exploits for God. It's impossible. Now, once you have a word, he expects you to respond with faith and do something with that word. In this case, do you know what the disciples were supposed to do? They were supposed to do exactly what Jesus ended up doing, to take authority over the situation and speak to the circumstances in their situation. They were to speak to the wind and waves to cease, and I'll prove it to you. This wasn't the first time that, God, that Jesus spoke words that changed the circumstances. Remember the object lesson he had given earlier? He and his disciples were leaving Bethany. I've preached on this uh, some time ago. And Jesus was hungry. Seeing a fig tree, he checked it to see if there was any fruit, though it wasn't in season because it was an object lesson he was going to teach them. So he cursed the tree, and when they passed it the next day, it had already withered and died. The disciples pointed this out to Jesus. Look how Jesus responded. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, and in another passage where, and I'm not going to go to it for the sake of time, but sometimes when he's talking about mountain, he's talking about authorities. And often these authorities were demonic spirits, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That happens, uh, for example, uh, where they couldn't heal the, uh, the, 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 the boy who was falling into the fire all the time when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, but leave that at that. Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done to him. He's not talking about obstacles and how, uh, uh, how to remove... Uh, uh, them, not save, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about obstacles and how to remove them. He's not talking about saving faith. He's saying, have faith in what God is saying to you. Trust him. And if you deeply believe what he reveals to you, you will act on it. And one of the things he expects you to do with your mountain is to speak out to the situation in prayer. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6, 17, when he said, take up the sword of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Paul exhorts us to partner with God. You know what, time out. I just feel I need to make a, another reminder uh, because I fear that there are going to be people running out here and, and telling the, the, the weather to change from 20 below and snow to 30 above because they want to go to Winnipeg Beach and lie on the beach today. <laughs> and they're going to be nuts about it. That has nothing to do with the glory of God and God's will. Remember the filters? When we're praying and we're talking about big obstacles and moving big obstacles, we're talking about the glory of God and moving and advancing the kingdom of God according to his will and his pleasure and his strategy and his plans. And you don't determine it and neither do I. Anyway, now I can carry on. And one of our responsibilities is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which again is the anarthris, or non-article grammatical construction, a rhema, a word, not the word. People are always uh, saying, the logos, this, the word. Yes, this word. But every, every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and he has not 
suddenly gone silent. He's constantly speaking into our situations. He's constantly speaking to pastors and denominational leaders and ministers and volunteers. He's speaking to us all the time. And parents, it may be a Bible verse, but it needn't be. And you wield that word like a sword, speaking it out against the enemy in prayer while praising God that it will happen just as he said it would. A sword is no good in its scabbard. You have to take it out and wield it. Is this really such a big thing? Some of you are sitting maybe a little bit skeptical. Is it, but stop for a second. Is this really such a big thing? Really? It certainly is true that mere man cannot simply go and speak to the force of nature, as I just said, and they will obey but what's more powerful, the forces of nature or the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places? Which one? Ah, we haven't considered that. Some of you aren't even maybe perhaps quite sure. But think about this. Can the devil and his demons change nature? And the answer is yes. In Job, he was permitted to send a ball of fire from heaven to consume 7,000 sheep and shepherds, and he was able to stir up a deadly hurricane-like hurricane wind that destroyed the house and killed all of Job's seven children. Now, which is the stronger of the two, the fire and wind, or the devil who stirred up both? Obviously, the devil. That means that it should be more difficult for us to deal with the devil than with the forces of nature. This isn't a message about dealing with the force of nature. I'm talking about big obstacles. And the force of nature is just a, it's a picture or a metaphor of what, and, and in some cases, if that's what it'll take, then even that. And yet Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and then empowered his many disciples and us to do the same thing. Is it true that he came to destroy the works of the devil? 1 John 3 verse 8 says that. And then it says in Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name, your glory, your will. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to over, uh, overcome all the power of the enemy. And we're told we can resist them. In fact, we're commanded to. James talks about it. Peter talks about it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The point being made is that when God reveals his will to a person, that person can then confidently, that is true faith, by the way. Faith is not something you work up in yourself. Faith is something that God speaks to you and then you do it. Do you think that Noah just came up with his bright idea to build an ark in the middle of nowhere when it had never rained? He didn't have a foggy clue how to build a canoe, never mind a ship. Huh? That wasn't his bright idea. That was God's bright idea, and God gave him the specific designs on how he would have, if he had built it, the thing would have sunk in the first 10 minutes of the flood. God told him and gave him the design, and then he did it, and Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Noah. That's what faith is. Faith isn't something you concoct in yourself. <sighs> oh, I got faith. That's craziness. 
We got a lot of nuts floating out there in Jesus' name who are doing things by faith that God never said. By faith, we do it. That's exactly what Elijah did. Uh, though a mere man. Elijah was a man just like us. Can you say, just like us? Ha-ha! Turn to someone next to you, just like you. And just like me. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I can see somebody running out of here this morning saying, I'm, Ah, there it is! I claim that verse in Jesus' name. Get me to the beach on time. Ah, <laughs> oh, foolishness. But there's more here than the fact that God used a man to change nature's course, and he did. Elijah was always acting in accordance with a word from the Lord. After many, for example, in chapter 18, verse 1, going back to the story, it says, After many days, the, help me, Word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Ha! That's why he could do it. Amen. Because God gave him a, a word, and that word is what he built his faith upon, and then he could go and do it. He, Elijah couldn't just go around changing the weather. Elijah couldn't just go around calling down fire all the time. He could only do it at the, at the word of the Lord. A lot of Christians today, don't, they want to bypass the first part of prayer, which is surrendered prayer, crucible, refining fire in their life, and full-out surrender and hearing God's voice and go straight to warfare prayer. There is no resurrection without the cross. There is no victory without death. None. You say, oh, well, that was in the Old Testament. But that's the point James is making. Precisely as Elijah in the Old Testament could move nature with a word from the Lord in the same way we can also and move any problem that God says that we, he wants us to move and he wants to use us to move it. James expects that when we receive a word from the Lord, we should be able to pray with similar confidence and similar results, and those who pay the price will be able to. Watchman Nee and a Chinese team were evangelizing a small village in January 1925. The fisher folk and farmers who were taking part in the New Year celebration were not very open to the gospel teams. They believed in a God named Tawang. And in a recreation of the encounter between Elijah and the Baal priests, Nee's team prayed, and the villagers saw God break through, and a deluge of rain came in response to the faith of Nee and the team. Those who had said, if your God is stronger than Ta Wang, then we will follow him. And they did just that. It was a breakthrough in their ministry. And the point that Scripture is making, quit praying tiny five-minute prayers that accomplish tiny things. Instead, get a hold of God in prayer and see what, he's, what He is doing. Surrender fully to Him. Align with His strategy and pray God-sized prayers and call down heaven. 
and fight in warfare against the enemy. Take up the sword of the Spirit. We're to speak these things when they are His words and will because His words have power to create the situation, not our words. I mean, uh, we used to have a pet too. I'd say, you know, sit. He wouldn't sit. My words don't have a lot of power. But if I speak God's words, they have tremendous power. Amen. Amen. Amen? Isaiah 55 says, So is my word which goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent. This is nothing new. This is our heritage. This is our birthright. This is how many have been set free at Southland. This is part of resisting the devil. This is how we, how we tell uh, the enemy to leave somebody who's enchained in demonic spirits. We tell them to leave in Jesus' name. We can do that. We don't even have to ask Jesus about that. Some things we know what are his will. And we can do it. But again, it takes the, it takes the life of a surrendered individual all out. Holy. A holy surrendered person, not a wacko. Hey, think about what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. They loved what they saw Peter doing. They said, uh, I mean, Paul was doing. And they said, huh, we're going to do the same thing. This is, this is neat magic. So they tried what Paul was doing. And guess what? The demon inside that man jumped out of them, and he whipped their butts. He said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but I don't know who you are. They hadn't been wrestling in any kind of prayer. They weren't fully out, all surrendered. They weren't holy people. This is part of resisting the devil. I'll use two examples, one on a personal family level and one on a church level. In 2004, Stephen was saved. We had fasted and prayed much. We were in Langley. Well, we were in Vancouver that summer. And uh, we were attending a church, CLA, in Langley, um, that Sunday morning, and they, they were praying for a missionary who was dying. So we were all asked to uh, get on our knees and pray for the missionary. So we got on, the, on, the knee, uh, on our knees, didn't know the missionary, and immediately God gave Fran a vision of Stefan and a bunch of black leeches co covering him. But the leeches looked like they were being stretched. In other words, they were being pulled, but she couldn't see what they were being pulled by. And in prayer, the Holy Spirit said, it's your prayers that are pulling the leeches off. Don't quit now. You're almost there. They're almost off. Well, we doubled up in prayer, and within a month, he was saved. And we went to war. I mean, we called out against the enemy. We said, in Jesus' name, we, we command you in Jesus' name. We cancel your assignments and your plans and your strategies. We break them in Jesus' name. And we claim that picture that you are weaker than God. And we tell you to go now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. We prayed like that, and we cried out to heaven. We praised the Lord, and eventually they stopped. We weren't the only ones praying. Lots of people were praying. But that's what I'm talking about. 2000, year 2000, that is, 15 years ago, I was praying and reading Revelation. This is in the old building in Highway 12. When the Holy Spirit spoke to me about a thousand churches, I wasn't even thinking about a thousand churches. I wasn't thinking about anything but Southland. How do we get Southland going? 
we're, we're five years in at that time. And uh, I was, as I was reading the book of Revelations, the Holy Spirit just began to speak to me about a thousand churches, and it was so overpowering. I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot explain it. All that I can tell you is I ended up on the floor, and I sobbed and sobbed uncontrollably, and I couldn't stop. It was, you said, wow, you are spiritual. No, this has nothing to do with spiritual. I was, he, he came on me. Gideon wasn't so spiritual. He was just threshing in the wine press there. He was hiding from the enemy. God decided he wanted to use him for something. I wondered if it meant I was to plant a thousand churches. I had planted one in Woodstock. I thought, wow, a thousand. So when John Bergen called me in, two, uh, in December 2008 and said uh, uh, that, uh, that he felt that we were supposed to launch some kind of ministry to the Canadian church, I said no because it made no sense to me. I thought, thousand churches, I'm supposed to plant churches somehow. I mean, I'll probably be 90 when I'm doing it. Um, and so I said no. Because I kept thinking about those thousand churches. And after much prayer, I finally began to see that the Holy Spirit was really talking to me about a network of a thousand renewed churches in Canada. So in November 2011, we launched with no churches, no strategy. November 2012, we got our first two pastors. And I announced to Southland Church at a prayer summit that we had only 998 to go. <laughs> and everybody laughed. Sean Van Dopp, one of the verse, first two, is here today. Sean, are you sitting over there? Would you stand? Yeah, let's give him a hand. That's three years ago. And uh, he is one of seven now that have just qualified to start mentoring at the entry level one level for new pastors who are joining uh, church renewal, and I love Sean uh, deeply. And uh, now we only have 945 churches left to go. So you say, how do you pray? I'll tell you how I pray. I march around my base, dark basement, as I did this morning again, when others are sleeping, crying out to God, <laughs> praising Him that He's going to do exactly what He said He would do. And I war against the enemy's strategies to stop it. We've received numerous pictures from lay people, pastors and denominational leaders, some from the U.S., different parts of Canada, not from Southland, that God is starting something here at Southland. Well, we've received that here too, but it's amazing how many people from away from here. But when God shows you something, you don't just wait for it to drop out of the sky. You bring it into being through warfare, prayer, and sacrifice, and hard, the hard work of the strategy God shows you as you listen in prayer. I've hear, heard so many Christians, and leaders included, they'll say, we got a prophetic word from somebody that God's going to do something amazing in our business or church or denomination, whatever it is. And then my question is, so what are you doing about it? Well, we're waiting. Waiting. God says to you, get up, full surrender, willing to pay the, uh, the, the, the price. Hear his strategy. Then cry out to God many hours in prayer. 
fighting against the enemy's schemes and assignments and strategies and plans, breaking them in Jesus' name, and thanking God by faith for what you don't yet see. And praying it, and then going and working long, hard hours to see it accomplished. Christian, in your home, your marriage is falling apart. Your kids are away from the Lord. You need to get up early and do something about it. Full-out surrender and full-out, all-out warfare prayer. Nothing less than that will accomplish it. I want to contrast two different responses as we come to a close that King Hezekiah made to two different challenges he faced, and both are found in the same chapter. The first challenge is in 2 Kings chapter 20 when Hezekiah became ill at the point of death. And you remember what happened? The prophet Isaiah came to him, said, put your house in order for you're going to die. See his desperation prayer. Here it goes. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I've walked before you. And he did, by the way. And faithfully, with wholehearted devotion, have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Way to go, Hezekiah. God heard his desperate prayer and added 15 years to his life. Same chapter, immediately following. Same chapter, as though the Holy Spirit is trying to contrast something. Shortly after, Hezekiah showed some Babylonian envoys all his treasures and armory. Isaiah then said, what have you done? And then pronounced that his own flesh and blood would be taken captive to Babylon one day. See how he responds this time. Verse 19. Word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Are you serious? No desperation, no prayer, because it wouldn't affect him directly. It exposed his heart. That's what that chapter is about. Praise like crazy for his own health. God gives it to him. Something's going to happen to the next generation. And he says, well, at least it won't happen in mine. Wow. If God was so eager to answer Hezekiah's prayer for himself, I wonder how eager he was for someone to pray for the next generation in Israel. How many are playing the odds that will squeak by as Hezekiah did? That may explain why the average time North American Christians pray is only 10 minutes per day. That's a total of three days per year. What would it be like if moms banded together during the week to war in prayer for their children in the school and the school system? What would it be like if marketplace leaders got to their offices two hours earlier to war in prayer for their employees and got God's strategy and purpose for their businesses? What would it be like if teachers got up two hours earlier to pr uh, war in prayer for their students and get God's strategy for their school boards and system? What would it be like if doctors got up two hours earlier to band together and war in prayer and get God's strategy for the medical system? What would it be like if seniors banded together to war in prayer for hours for their children and grandchildren? What would it be like if pastors got up two hours earlier just to war in prayer 
prayer for their congregation and get God's strategy to renew their, that church? What would it be like if denominational leaders got up two hours earlier just to war in prayer for their pastors and churches and get God's strategy for their district or denomination? What would it be like? I wonder. I don't wonder. It would be different. It would be different than what it is today. And I believe God is calling this generation to rise up, to first fall on our face in full surrender, saying to God, I'll pay whatever the price, and name it. And then to rise up from our feet and rise up and say, God, I will war in prayer until you hear from heaven. And move back these, the storm and the clouds that are covering our land today and our churches today and our denominations today and our families today. Come in power, oh God, and move back the enemy. We resist you in Jesus' name. Lord, this was your word for us today. We receive it humbly. We receive it with gratitude, knowing that you love and care for us that much. We say right now as church, We fall on our knees in full surrender to you, willing to pay whatever the cost is. And then, Lord, we're saying to you today that we will rise up to war in prayer. To war in prayer for, us, for our marriages. To war in prayer for our families. To war in prayer for our communities, our churches, our districts, our denominations. God, we say to you, we will rise up. God, we ask you to make us desperate like Hannah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.